why there's even a vice president of peas down at the supermarket. Somewhat flabbergasted, Bob rang the local supermarket to find out if this was true. Can I speak to the vice president of peas, please, he asked. To which the reply came, would you like to speak to the vice president of the fresh peas or the vice president of the frozen peas? Humility, church, does not come naturally to us. And yet, if that is the case, how can we display, how can we model the humble mind of Christ to serve others and to be God's light in the world? I have good news this morning, though, church, which takes us to our thesis of the sermon this morning or the main theme of our message, which is this. That God not only gives his children the grace they need to have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ for eternal salvation, but God also gives his children the grace they need to grow in the humble likeness of Christ so that they can be lights in a dark world and bring glory to his name. Again, God not only gives his children the grace they need for eternal salvation, but he also gives his children the grace they need to grow in the humble likeness of Christ so that we can be lights in a dark, dark world and bring glory to his name. Again, our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2. We will be in verses 12 through 18. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend following along in the text this morning. Again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for your grace and for your Son, Jesus Christ, and his redemptive work on the cross. Father, I pray for my lisping, stammering, sinful tongue this morning. Father, I pray that I communicate the words that you want me to communicate. Father, I pray for the hearts of your children that are listening. I pray they be softened, that their eyes be opened, that they can hear. Father, let us be faithful to your word this morning so that you be glorified with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to keep it nice and simple this morning. Our sermon has two main points that we will be looking at, and we will spend the majority of our time in the second point this morning. But we will start with the first, 
in verses 12 and 13 that God gives his children the grace they need to grow in the humble likeness of Christ. Verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now again, we want to remember the context. Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. They are a faithful church, and he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. This is a church who has been zealous. They have been faithful to obeying the apostles' teaching, both when Paul was present with them in Philippi, and it says when Paul left, they were still faithful and zealous to the apostles' teaching. But then in the text, we come across two phrases that seem almost dichotomous. They seem disjointed, as if they don't agree with each other. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation, but it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And one of, some of you may be sitting there this morning thinking, well, which one is it? Some may be sitting there thinking, wait, I thought I was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What is this? Work out your own salvation. And some of you may be sitting there this morning thinking, well, this is downright confusing. But in reality, this is one of the most comforting couple of verses in all of the scriptures for the believer. And why do I say that? It is because here God confirms that he will conform and he will shape his children into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Dr. Thomas Constable puts it this way. He said, God does not work and has not worked because man has worked. In fact, the contrary is true. It is because God works and has worked, therefore man must and now can work. When we hit this work out your salvation, remember Paul is writing to Christians in Philippi who have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He is not writing to non-Christians telling them work out your own salvation, meaning earn your salvation. Paul's saying to this church in Philippi, Christians who have been justified, who have been saved, you work out your own salvation, meaning apply your salvation to everything you do in life. It is a picture of the progressive work of our sanctification as we grow in the likeness of Christ, as we grow in the obedience of Christ. When we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who makes us a new creation. But the Spirit, he does not stop there because it's God who works in you, church, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Spirit continues to give us the grace we need to presently, in the here and now, apply our faith, to apply our salvation in everything we do, to be conformed to the image of God, to work through and to persevere our trials, and to be obedient to the word of God above all else. And there is a beautiful 
illustration of this in John chapter 9, where it is God who is ultimately working in man, but mankind is still called to obey the word and the commands of God. In John chapter 9, it says, As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. You may know the story. And Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the blind man went and washed and came back seeing. Now who healed this man, church? Because it was the blind man who went to the pool and washed. But as James Kaufman pointed out, although no one can deny that the blind man would not have been healed without doing what Christ commanded, that did not make him his own healer. It was Christ who healed this man, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus answered his disciples' question as to why this man was born blind by saying, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Church, the work of our obedience to Christ, the work of our sanctification, it is not for the sluggard. It is not for the lazy. It is not for the loaf. It takes discipline to read and to study and to memorize the scriptures daily. It takes effort to avoid the temptations of this immoral world. It takes courage to boldly pray and evangelize with a stranger in public. But take heart this morning, just as God has given you the grace you need to have faith in Jesus Christ, he also gives the grace needed to excite us, to empower us, and to drive us to apply our salvation, to apply our faith in every aspect of our life, so that the work of God might be displayed in us. He gives us the grace we need to excite us, to empower us, and to drive us to apply our salvation in every aspect of our lives so that the work of God might be displayed in us. To God be the glory for that church. Which takes us now to part two of our text this morning, or part two of our message. As Christians who have been given the gift of salvation... Paul here offers instructions and displays how to apply our salvation to everyday life. Verses 14 through 18. He writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
Remember from our introduction this morning, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 7. As Christians, we are called to have the servant-driven mind of Christ. We are to count others as more significant than ourselves. And with that in mind, Paul writes in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because you see, church, when we grumble, when we complain to ourselves and when we protest to ourselves, or when we dispute, meaning we argue in an irritable way, the root sin that causes the grumbling or the disputing, as Mark Dugan puts it, is that man is still preoccupied with self and not with their submission to Christ or their service to others, a.k.a. pride. It is the concept of thinking too highly of ourselves. It's the concept of thinking too highly of our own opinions, thinking too highly of our own thoughts and our own preferences. Paul says, do not all things without grumbling or disputing. And he gives this direction to them so that they may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. If you want to look like the world, if you want to look like the twisted and crooked generation, then grumble, then complain, then argue, dispute everything, and I promise you, you will fit right in. If you don't like some of the ideas of the church leadership, dispute them, and do it in a testy and sarcastic fashion, I promise you, you will look just like the world. If you don't like one of the directions of the church ministries, create a verbal controversy over it, and you will look just like the twisted and the crooked generation Paul talks about. If you don't like the preaching, if you don't like the music, if you don't like the order of service, if you think it's too formal, if you think it's too informal, get as hot and as angry as you can. Let the church leaders, let the members, let everyone hear it, and I promise you, you will look just like the world. And I share this with you this morning, church, because I care for the eternal state of your souls. The problem with grumbling or disputing, if that is the practice of your life, Galatians 5 says that if you make a practice of enmity and strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warn you before that those who do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your Lord this morning is your own agenda, if your Lord this morning is your own opinions, If it is your own power, lovingly, I am warning you, you are worshiping at the altar of self this morning and not at the altar of Christ. And you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Thus, I plead with you this morning, turn from the sin, turn from the idolatry, if the practice of your life is grumbling or disputing, and submit yourself to Christ and to Christ alone.
But brother Christian, sister Christian, we have been saved by the blood of Christ. We are new creations in Jesus Christ. We have been given the mind of Christ. We have been called. We have been empowered not to act like this crooked and twisted generation around us with grumbling or disputing, but we have been called to apply our salvation, to display our salvation, to work out our salvation. In verse 15 it says, "...among whom we shine as lights in the world." I read a story in preparing for this sermon about a man who was sitting by a window in his house, admiring the night sky when suddenly a man passed by. He was a lamplighter, and it was his job to push the pole up into the lamp and to light it. And then he'd go to another lamp and then to another. Now, due to the dark night sky, it was impossible to actually see him out the window. But you knew where the lamplighter was by the lamps he lit as they broke out down the street one by one because they left an avenue of beautiful light. You see, it was the lamplighter's business to light lamps and not to make himself seen, but for the world to take notice of his light. Church, we do not need to seek to be seen. We do not need to seek to be noticed. We do not need to seek to be glorified by man. But we must seek to humble ourselves and shine so that humanity may see the true light, Jesus Christ. The man sitting by his window knew where the lamplighter was by the light as they broke out. Can people tell where you are at, church, by the light you give off? Can they tell who you seek to glorify with your life? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he told his disciples that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do we apply our salvation? How do we apply our faith to everyday life? Church, we let this crooked and twisted world around us, we let them see the eternal hope, the eternal joy we have in Christ by how we live our lives, by our humble demeanor, our willingness to serve others the supernatural way. We love each other as a church and we love God and by the compassionate and persuasive way we share the gospel message with others. And we do it in the face of a world that despises us, so that the one who saved us, church, so that he be glorified. And Paul goes on then in verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Church, we will naturally shine 
We will naturally look vastly different from the world if we hold fast to the word of life. Meaning if we hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to his word, and we submit ourselves to it. Now there's some debate here concerning the translation of the Greek word apeho, which can mean, and as we've read in the text, it can either mean hold fast to the word of light, meaning to cling to, to believe, or to trust in the gospel. Or it could also be translated to hold forth, meaning to proclaim the gospel. My humble thoughts on the matter is this, that anything we truly hold fast to, anything we cling to, anything we hold on to, anything we put our focus on, we are naturally going to hold forth that and proclaim that truth. Thus, if we truly love the gospel, if we truly cling to the gospel and desire the gospel more than anything else, then you better believe there is going to be a proclamation, an outpouring of the gospel message from our lives. Because everyone holds fast to, everyone holds forth something. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce said, it is impossible to avoid advocating some point of view. So why not admit the fact that our time would be best spent in promoting God's point of view? No one will take our message seriously if the way we live our life is at variance with it. But if we lived in such a way that our neighbors asked, what enabled them to live such lives? then we can tell them of the word of life that has revolutionized our attitudes and conduct. Either we submit ourselves to the word of God and hold fast to and hold forth Christ, or we hold fast and we delight in our pride, and we hold fast and hold forth ourselves. And this concept of holding fast and holding forth ourselves, it is the exact opposite of what Paul exhibited and what he charged Christians to do. Verses 17 and 18, he says, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, whether you had an understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system or whether you were simply a pagan and Greco-Roman culture walking around, you knew exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. It was that Paul was willing. He was humbly And he was zealously willing to lay down his life for the spread of the gospel. So that these people in Philippi and individuals throughout the world could hear the gospel message and repent. As it says in Romans 12, by the mercies of God, they too then can present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is their spiritual worship. Paul was zealously and humbly willing to lay down his life for the spread of the gospel. 
so individuals could hear and repent and present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He says, don't pity me for a second. Do not pity me for a second. I've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's been given the gift of eternal salvation. Philippians 1.21, he says, in the present, in the here and now, for him to live is Christ, but to die, it is gain. He was willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel, everything for the growth of the gospel. He was willing to suffer well for the gospel. And let the manner of his life be worthy of the gospel. Church, are we? Are we willing to let the manner of our life be worthy of this gospel message? As we close this morning, I will admit is a bit of an extended close. I will be, begin by addressing the non-Christian who is here first. A non-Christian that is here this morning, first off, thank you so much for being here. It is an honor to have you in our house of worship this morning. But I understand that you may be sitting there this morning thinking, what type of brainwashing happens to Christians? You're called to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. You're called to be lights in a dark world and run counter to a world that could be hostile toward us. This Paul character, he's willing to be poured out, literally killed for the growth of this. Why would anyone be faithful to this calling? It is quite simple because as Christians, we are beneficiaries. We are recipients of the humble, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Whereas the only true God, the God of the universe, he came into this world as Jesus Christ to save sinners. You see, sin has separated us from a holy God. God is perfectly holy, he is perfectly just, and we are not. Thus, because of this sin and because of this separation, because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath, we deserve eternal damnation. And Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, came into this world. And the wrath that we deserve for our sins, Jesus Christ, he bore that punishment. And he was crushed. He was crucified, he died, and was buried. But because he was a perfect and spotless sacrifice for the sins of humanity, without any sin, it appeased God. And three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. We have a God. We have a shepherd who was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Thus, non-Christian, I plead with you, let today be the day that you see your sin, you sense the guilt of your sin, and you repent, and you trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And he will not only forgive you of your sin, he will clothe you in his perfect righteousness and reconcile you, bring you back into fellowship with God through eternity. Why would we as Christians be faithful to this calling? Hebrews 9.28 says, Because Christ, who was offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
Let today be the day, non-Christian, you experience saving grace and you are ushered into salvation through eternity. And now to the Christian that is here this morning. We started with the thesis statement that God not only gives his children the grace they need for eternal salvation, but God also gives his children the grace they need to grow in the humble likeness of Christ so that they can be light in a dark world and bring glory to his name. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, well, what's my motivation What's my reasoning for this undertaking? I've already been saved. We started this morning in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2 with one word that I purposefully skipped over until now. That word is therefore. And it refers back to Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. And to summarize, it goes something like this, that because Jesus Christ emptied himself, because Christ took the form of a servant, because Christ humbled himself, because Christ was obedient to God the Father, even to the point of death, because of that, verse 9 says, God highly exalted Christ. And the argument here, as John Piper so eloquently lays out, if we as Christians are willing to trust in the gospel, to submit ourselves to Christ, to humble ourselves for the sake of obedience and the spread of the gospel, then we too, church, will be exalted with Christ. Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. He said, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, real quick context. The Jews saw tax collectors as evil or as traitors because they gathered money for Rome and for Roman power, whereas the Jews, they saw Pharisees as holy men due to their devotion and their adherence to the law. Okay? So the Pharisee, standing by himself, said thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Romans 8, 16, and 17 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also then be glorified with him. The Spirit bears witness that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we're willing to suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Church, Jesus Christ, the God of this world, he humbled himself into human flesh. 
Are we willing to humble ourselves this morning to consistently repent to those who we sin against? Jesus Christ, the God of this world, He humbled Himself to serve the lame, to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted. Are we willing to humble ourselves to serve children and families in our school districts who go hungry on the weekends? Jesus Christ, He humbled Himself to the point of death for the forgiveness of the sins of His children. Are we willing to humble ourselves and risk the feeling of embarrassment to share the gospel with our next-door neighbor. But Wes, all of this is kind of uncomfortable. It's a little humiliating, a little inconvenient. What is my motivation? Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the suffering at this present time. Church, any suffering, any humiliation, any embarrassment for the sake of the gospel, it is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us when we are with our God in heaven forever. And it is my prayer that we as a church body saved by the blood of Christ, that we grow in Christ-likeness, humbling ourselves in the way we serve others, putting our preferences aside to avoid grumbling and disputing within this beautiful body, and with a mind focused on being imitators of God. Church, we let our actions, we let our lights boldly and brilliantly and blazingly radiate for all to see. To God be the glory. Because the humiliation, the embarrassment we may face now for the sake of the gospel, it is not worth comparing to the glory we will see when we are with God forever in paradise. Be lights in this dark world, church. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for this dear congregation. Lord, I pray that they go out from this place of worship and they worship you throughout the week in the way they live their lives in the way they serve the least of these, in the way they build each other up, the way they are bold and courageous for their good and for your glory. Strengthen this church, I pray. Give them the strength that they can humble themselves. Father, you humbled yourself to the point of death. Lord, let us replicate that character. Let us be imitators of you, God, we pray. You will surely do it. Strengthen us, Lord. Amen.